Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the 13th century, the British Isles found themselves torn to pieces by civil war, and a new legend rose out of Scotland. Born William Wallace, this 20-something warrior rose to prominence by showing an undying commitment to the cause of independence. A natural leader and tall in stature, Wallace became the face of resistance to England's Edward I and revealed a penchant for brute force and violence at all costs. Although he was romanticized by the Mel Gibson film, Wallace was no Braveheart, but would become something much, much more. On this episode, we discuss William Wallace and the Scottish War of Independence. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing Game Changers, who they were, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can follow us on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events, and we do have some coming up, so I'd like you to check them out. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're moving forward with our Game Changer series, talking about one of, I think, the most fascinating and well-known figures in all of Western history. The funny thing is, as much as we think we know about him, we actually know very little. And the reason why is because of our friend Hollywood. Nothing ruins a great historical figure like a Hollywood movie. I am convinced. I've seen very few Hollywood movies I would ever recommend to any of my students or any of my listeners or any of my readers with the expressed ambition of learning something about the person. History is a wonderful thing, but we have to get our history from the sources. There are many great movies out there. There are many great actors and actresses out there who really put their spin on characters. But remember, they are just that. Characters. A movie is an artist's interpretation of an event. Right? A lot of directors and producers and makeup designers and composers really work hard to make a wonderful and entertaining movie. They are not trying to win a Pulitzer Prize for the best historical study. They want you to be entertained and moved and hopefully get your money's worth. A movie is a work of art. It is not a serious study in history. Now, I'm not going to bash historical movies, because I think there's a lot of really good ones, but what I will say is don't go into them hoping to really take something meaningful away about the character. You know, this past year, the movie American Sniper came out, and I got myself into trouble on social media. That's me, I guess. Because I made the comment that Clint Eastwood put a lot of hard work, and Bradley Cooper put a lot of hard work into giving incredible performances and I will say that America's Sniper blew me away but I also reminded people that even though it's quote based on a true story you're not actually seeing real combat in that movie you're seeing an artist's interpretation of actual events 
Now, I'm not trying to discredit the man involved, Chris Kyle. I'm not trying to discredit the people involved. That's not my ambition. I'm just saying, you know, Bradley Cooper really wasn't fighting people in that movie. So whenever you begin to worship Bradley Cooper's character, remember, he is just a character like Spider-Man or Big Bird. Chris Kyle was a real person. Uh, he didn't have a camera on his helmet, probably for, for good reason, right? Uh, but uh, don't confuse Hollywood with the real thing. That being said, you know, outstanding picture and really a movie based on a guy who should have a movie based on him. Um, unfortunately, you get reality shows uh, for people who do far less than what Chris Kyle did. But anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a figure we think we know a lot about, but actually we know very little about. Uh, William Wallace, a.k.a. Braveheart. Now, one of the things I want to do, and I try to debate how we should do this. Do I want to uh, ruin the movie for you as we go through or do it all up front? Uh, I think I'll do it as we go through, but I want to preface a few things. Number one is, again, Hollywood's number one ambition is making money. Period. Uh, Mel Gibson's number one ambition in that movie was giving good performance. Uh, but there was nothing about the movie Braveheart other than the fact it was based in Scotland and there was a person named William Wallace in it that actually rang of anything resembling the truth. As you listen to this podcast, and hopefully you have seen Braveheart, it's one of those iconic movies. Again, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s. I was born in the 80s, but... You know, I grew up in the 90s. That movie was really important to me. Um, and then when I learned about who William Wallace actually was, it also became very hilarious to me. So there's a, a couple things straight away we have to clarify. Number one, first and foremost, William Wallace was never, and I mean never, until Mel Gibson decided to call him this, known as Braveheart. Hit the brakes, right? Think about that. Think about how crazy this is. William Wallace, in his lifetime, and for the 800 years after it, was never once referred to as Braveheart in his life. There was a Braveheart. It was a man named Robert Bruce, who's also in that movie, and also portrayed in a completely farcical way. So we'll begin right there uh, at that point. There's a couple other things about the movie, and we'll talk about those we go through that are, again, very funny. You have to understand the world in which it occurs. Context is everything. And a lot of season four is about putting these people in context. So let's get some context. This story occurs in England in the 13th century. England in the 13th century is a very tumultuous place that we think we understand well, but we don't. One thing I learned about studying medieval history, and I'm not a medievalist. For a while in college, I pretended to be one. Until uh, I made the decision not to. But, at any rate, I probably would have got to travel a lot more if I stayed that way. Um, the medieval world is far different than what we think it is. So here's a good example. Uh, number one, William Wallace, as seen in the movie Braveheart, Braveheart uh, never, and I mean never, wore a kilt. Now I want you to think about it and watch that movie. And look at the prevalence of the Scottish tartan and kilt, the plaid, in that movie. That practice did not exist for another two to three hundred years until the movie Braveheart actually takes place. Why did they make him wear a kilt? Well, that's what people wanted to see. That's what they wanted to expect. If William Wallace was just dressed the same way as his English oppressors, it wouldn't have looked great. You wouldn't have 
commiserated with him. So they put him in a kilt. Uh, didn't happen for another two to three hundred years. Even more than that, the way they had him wear it was never done in history. One specialist who watched the movie Braveheart and actually made it through said that William Wallace wearing a kilt the way that he did in that movie is the equivalent to making a movie about 1776 and having George Washington wearing a hooded sweatshirt backwards. I mean, that's pretty serious, right? That's pretty intense stuff. So what I want to say is Braveheart did not, and I mean did not worry about sacrificing the truth to make a good movie. And it was a heck of a movie. It really was. It just wasn't true. So what's England like in the 13th century? Well, England in the 13th century is a difficult place because it's occurring in a period of expansion. Now, whenever expansion occurs, two things inevitably happen. One is that some what we think uh, founding morals will be compromised. And two is that almost immediately they'll try to rewrite the history so it didn't seem that way. So what do I mean? The King of England at this time is Edward I. They called him Longshanks, and you do see him in the movie, and he does seem like a pretty rotten guy. But again, he's designed to be that way, much like Darth Vader is designed to be that way in a movie. He's not a real character, as you see him. Uh, he's a person. Now, early on in Edward Longshanks' career, he's dealing with uh, what I would call a fairly progressive England. And what I mean is that England is ruled in a unique way compared to other places in Europe. Yes, there is a king. Yes, he is on top. Edward I is not challenged. But there is a very powerful feudal underclass beneath the king, the nobility, who little by little, since the age of King John and the Magna Carta, uh, have been asking for more power, demanding more power. I don't want to call this a democracy. It's not, not yet. But this idea that there is a check or a leverage on the king is something that Edward I really has to deal with more than other kings before him. There have been incremental developments in kings before Edward I, Longshanks, but now these are big ones. So as he's viewed as very heavy-handed, as very uh, almost uh, sadistic and evil in the movie Braveheart, I'm not sure. In fact, I'm going to say that's not a fair interpretation of who Edward is. But one of the things you do see about Edward in this time period, and depending on the perspective, he is going to look like a pretty bad guy, is expansion of England. Okay, expansion of England. What do I mean? Well, if you look at a map of Great Britain today, this is one of those things no one ever tells you. You have to figure out on your own, so I'll just put it out there if you don't know already. When you look at a map of Great Britain, you're not going to see England by itself. Someone once asked me, what's the difference between England and Great Britain? Well, this is it. Great Britain is actually all of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland combined. That's why if you watch the Olympic Games, you're not going to see a high jumper from Scotland or a hockey player from Wales. They'll all be on the British team. England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all formed together to create uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Okay? That's what we have today. How do we get there? Or at least how does it start? That's what we're going to talk about now. Edward I looks at Wales just due west, uh, almost like a peninsula that shoots off of, of England itself uh, as a threat. Edward will look due north. 
and he'll see Scotland as a threat. And these places all have different kings and different histories and different dynasties. And Edward believes it's England's duty to conquer these places. And he wages full-scale war on both of them, Wales to the west and Scotland to the north. He gets the name by the end of this, Malleus Scotorum, which is Latin, which means the Hammer of the Scots. So he's not going to be well-liked by these people. But you have to understand, again, the world in which this story occurs. Edward moves into Wales, and he realizes these are a tough people, Scotland as well. And for every inch of land you want to take from the Welsh or take from the Scottish, you have to know that the war and the battle and the victory is only the beginning. Because once you take something from these people, they're going to fight to get it back. And this is Edward's big challenge in the age. Edward will look to Wales first. He'll conquer one region at a time, and each time he does it, he wants to hold it, clear and hold. So he builds a castle. Now, what is a castle? A castle is, for all intents and purposes, a fort. And he builds them all over Wales. Conquers a territory, builds a castle, puts his troops in, holds the land. Goes a little further, puts another castle, holds the land. And before you know it, Edward conquers all of Wales. And he leaves these very impressive, uh, but very strong statements of power in the region. Alien power, English power. We call these the Edwardian castles. Wales, in my opinion, just from a, an aesthetic viewpoint, just from the perspective of an outsider, uh, 800 years later, Wales has the most spectacular castles from this age. And we call them the Edwardian castles. Now, that's what Edward wants to do to Scotland. He wants to capture the area. Now, he's got a lot going on at the time. Um, dealings with other European powers, again, controlling the Welsh, but he's looking to Scotland. And he needs an opportunity. I mean, we can't make this out to be like England, who has been a neighbor of Scotland since the beginning of time, just rolls into town. And the opportunity arrives about 20 years into William Wallace's life. So we'll talk about what it is. The King of Scotland is out drinking one night. His men tell him, you should stay where you are. Um, you Maybe you had a little too much, right? You know how that is. Uh, and the king says, no, he wants to go home. And, and, and as the story goes, this is literally true. He wants to go home and make love to any number of women that a king would have access to, whatever. He goes out on a horse. It's a storm. He never comes back. They find him a few days later with a broken neck. Obviously, the, the perils of drinking and driving. The King of Scotland dies. I mean, how terrible. That must be the most meaningful libido in world history. But at any rate, the King of Scotland is dead. Who will replace him? Now, in our world we live in today, if you're lucky enough to live in a Republican democracy, whenever a position of power becomes vacant, you have a fail-safe to replace it. Right? You're never going to have a succession crisis. But these people don't live in the modern world. They live in a very different time. And whenever a king dies, everybody's ears kind of perk up because they want to make sure that their family line, preferably beginning with them, become the people to take over the country. So when you have a succession crisis, and this is something that will be true from uh, this moment, even earlier, all the way till World War I, you never have a circumstance where uh, people just let civil war tear a country apart. 
you know, every one of these countries has allies. Every one of them has diplomatic relations with other kingdoms. The last thing that an onlooker really wants is for Scotland to fall to pieces, Scotland to be ripped to shreds by its own hand, different rival factions trying to take over the government. So there's always usually one, two, or even more kingdoms that step in as an arbitrator. That is, uh, determining in what they claim to be um, a neutral fashion, which it never is, by the way, uh, who will be the new ruling family of Scotland. Well, the person that will step in at this time, as you can imagine, is none other than Longshanks himself, Edward I. And for Edward, what a perfect opportunity to put his plans in action to take Scotland. I mean, he needed a reason to do it. Now he can do it without spilling any blood. He steps in, he listens to the, the various noble families, why they should be in charge, and he says, you know what? I think it's better if, if I'm in charge. I think it's better if, if me, the King of England, just, just, uh, annexes Scotland as part of my domain. And isn't that convenient, right? Isn't that special? Um, that's not a great deal for the Scots, but believe it or not, uh, Edward will meet with the ruling families, the major ruling families of Scotland, and they will be collaborators in this. They will give Edward, uh, the reins, so to speak, of the kingdom. Now, one thing we have to be clear on is, is, is who uh, these people represent. No one voted them into power. No one elected them. Don't view this from our perspective. They stood to benefit from this. But the lower classes of people, and we don't want to say there's a middle class because this is feudal Scotland. I mean, there's uh, a very small percentage of people with wealth and means that own land than everybody else with somebody's boot on their neck. They aren't so favorable of this action. They're Scots, they don't like the English, and they begin to rebel. Now, this is the world in which William Wallace, not Braveheart, not by a long shot, but William Wallace steps into. Now, what do we know about William Wallace from the beginning? Go to the sources. Always go to the sources. History is like the worst game of telephone ever invented. You hear one thing, then you hear from someone else, and you hear from someone else, and before you know it, the original message is lost. What did the sources say about William Wallace? Not much. Sort of a letdown. A couple things about William Wallace. We know that William Wallace was born as the son of a minor nobleman. That is, he wasn't a landowner, because no one just owned land back then, unless you were a member of the gentry class. Uh, but he was well-connected with familial blood ties. And we've seen this time and again throughout history. Very few rebellions of the people are actually led by, quote, one of the people. They're usually led by somebody from the inside. And this is who William Wallace is. He is not a wild and wooly, rough-and-ready, uh, rugged Mel Gibson character, as we see at Braveheart. Uh, they make Mel Gibson's character in Braveheart seem like he crawled out from under a rock. You know, he's dirty, he's got some sheep. It's almost hilarious to think that a man of noble blood, probably fitting into somewhere we would think of today as the upper middle class, if there was one, uh, would be just some you know run-of-the-mill character. He wasn't. Noble blood here. That goes a long way. Uh, he'll be, again, the person at the center of it. Now, again, we don't know what William Wallace looked like. We do have a few sources that tell us that he was enormous. 
And I think that's pretty important. Uh, we could guess he was anywhere from 6'5 to 6'6, given the time period what being a giant would be, but everybody who met him spoke of his physical stature. Uh, and again, that's something Mel Gibson, I guess, gets wrong. Uh, I bet if he could have changed it, he, he would have. But at any rate, this is what we see. Now, how does Wallace get involved? Because again, many in the upper class uh, were, were uh, collaborators. Uh, in this engagement. Well, here's what the sources tell us. We know by about the year 1297 that William Wallace, born in Scotland, raised in Scotland, was a fugitive from the law of England. Now, remember, England's in power of Scotland at the time. Uh, and even though Edward I, Edward I has appointed um, a sort of proxy king, uh, King John in Scotland, he really is the one calling the shots. William Wallace is being sought out. We don't know why. We think we, he may have killed uh, two English soldiers uh, at a place called Dundee. We aren't sure, but uh, it seems like that's the case. But at any rate, where the story really begins for us is at a place called Lanark. Now, as the story goes, and, and again, I don't say that often, but I want to make sure we know what we can prove and what we can't. In this town of Lanark, uh, William Wallace was meeting his lovely bride, Marion Braidfoot. Remember that name, Marion especially. And supposedly they were married in secret. And supposedly because Wallace was there and he was a fugitive, uh, the sheriff of the region, a man named William Hasselrig, uh, sent out his men to find Wallace. And of course they can't find Wallace. He flees the town, so they take his dear Marion in his place, and they kill her, of course. Um, Wallace will become angry, he'll roll out of the hills, and he'll come back at night, and he'll kill Hasselrig and all of his soldiers. And this is the beginning of Wallace as the guerrilla leader, Wallace as the uh, insurgent warrior, so to speak. The reason, I should say, we're talking about him today. Now, a couple things are troubling about that. And... It's one of those reasons you have to be very cautious about historical sources, um, especially ones that are early, that is to say, compared to like a modern book on Wallace, uh, but after the fact. I mean, that story of the events of Lanark and the killing of Hasselrig uh, and the death of his bride is a story we don't get till long after the fact. I mean, we still get it in what we think of as the Middle Ages, uh, but maybe 100, 200 years after. Wallace lived. So it very well could have been a fabrication to uh, sort of raise up his character a bit. And that name, Marion, that really stays with me. Uh, because this is about the same time that we're seeing the figure of Robin Hood, who, for all intents and purposes, is not a real person, more of a literary device, coming into action, coming into popularity. And again, the primary feature of Robin Hood's story is that it evolves over time, but there is a maid Marion. And we do have references to Wallace before this that have no wife, especially not named Marion. Um, so this is a difficult part for us. I mean, do we say it's gospel, so to speak? Do we say it's infallible? He was married to Marion Braidfoot uh, and she was killed and that's why he sort of raised the flag of rebellion against the English who have been uh, ruling his country, usurping his nation. I don't know. I don't know. So what every historian does, almost without fail, and I'm going to do it here, 
is they tell the story with vigor and gusto, and then they say, but it may not have happened that way. And that's history. I mean, that's part of it. It's not our job as historians to have the whole story. I mean, we find what we can, and when we can't find it, the best thing to do is just to say, and the details are foggy. We don't have everything. But this is the moment we can say that William Wallace jumps into the historical record uh, and becomes a, uh, a leader of men in Scotland. Now, a few things moving forward I think are important for us to set the stage for this whole thing. And again, we might beat up the movie a little bit, but a couple cultural aspects that the movie did not portray well, which I think is really important. First and foremost being, at this time, William Wallace, even though he's from Scotland, would have been raised, at least in his household, speaking French. Think of that. That's a real curveball for people. For a lot of English history in the Middle Ages, French was the uh, language of the people. It was en vogue. It was uh, the lingua franca. So when you see Mel Gibson giving these impassioned speeches uh, from horseback in that film, remember he should be speaking French, not English. But the other thing is, in the movie, you see him wearing this face paint, which is maddening to a historian. That is face paint that would have been worn when the Romans invaded Britain. Oh, say about a thousand years earlier than Wallace. But nobody in their right mind would have worn that face paint in this war. I mean, that was ancient practices of the Britons who lived there, of the Celts and the Picts. Um, they didn't wear that at this point. So they're wearing kilts and tartans they wouldn't have had for 300 years, and they're wearing face paint that they gave up a thousand years earlier. And they're speaking in a language that they wouldn't have been. But other than that, the movie's great. Now, whenever you see Wallace killing uh, the Sheriff Hesselrig at Lanark, this is not a seminal moment in the rebellion of Scotland, but it's one of many... Uh, flares of rebellion, sparks of rebellion that occur. Right around the same time, a man named Andrew Moray is leading a rebellion in the northern and western parts of Scotland. And he's successful. Uh, there's also what we call a nobleman rebellion in the lowlands of Scotland, which is put down rather quickly. And then, of course, you have Wallace killing this sheriff. But, I mean, this is just one drop in the, in the bucket of crazy for King Edward I, for Longshanks. So Longshanks will remove the uh, puppet King John from power in Scotland. He had no real authority anyway. And he says, I'm going to officially make myself king of this region. And when this happens, you have the beginning of what we can call uh, the, the Scottish War of Independence. And we'll go through some of the high notes as far as Wallace is concerned next. One thing I really don't like to do on this series is throw too much chronological information at you all at once. I mean, you know, if you want to learn about the War of Scottish Independence in great detail, think of this podcast as a gateway source. I mean, it'll point you in the right direction. Um, but if you just want a general view of the conflict, I think for time's sake, it's what we have. But if you had a map of England, and again, I'll tweet these out on the Twitter feed. I'll put them on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Uh, really, Wallace's insurrection, he becomes a key figure in this as his following grows, occurs between two rivers 
uh, the fourth and the Tay. And that might not seem very impressive to us, because these rivers aren't greatly spaced apart, but when you're thinking of the fact that from the very southern tip of England to the northern tip of Scotland is basically the size of, like, Mississippi or Alabama in the American states, that makes that real estate pretty valuable. But this is the area where Wallace's name, his his power, his prestige really begins to develop, and he really begins to catch a following. Moving forward, as we go through the larger rebellion of William Wallace and his cohorts, really important you understand, Wallace is not alone in this action. Remember we mentioned there are several different people leading different rebellions, uh, maybe for different reasons, maybe with a different endgame against the English. One of them I already mentioned, Andrew Moray in the Northwest, actually works really well with Wallace. There was a rebellion of the noblemen. Wallace put his faith in that rebellion. And almost as soon as the English made overtures toward them, made deals with them, they took the deals. Their rebellion was over just like that. So from Longshank's perspective, from Edward I's English perspective, things are going his way. Uh, but some factions of resistance, like William Wallace, like Andrew Moray, sign no document. They made no agreement, and they have no interest in giving up uh, their fight. Now, we mentioned where Wallace operates. It was in a completely different region of Scotland than Andrew Moray, but they keep close communication. And they begin to use a base of operations in a place called the Ettrick Forest. Again, it's in that region I discussed earlier. And basically how Wallace keeps his resistance alive is through something we're very familiar with here on Wartime. If you've listened to Season 3, you know how this works. If you've listened to Season 2 in certain aspects, you know how this works. He, he lacks the manpower of the English army. He lacks the money of the English government. But he can still make things very difficult for them. And the way that he does it is through quick, calculated strikes on his terms. Playing by his own rules and effectively breaking those of England. The English will view him as a scoundrel. The English will view him as a person who uh, fights with no pride and no honor. But if you go toe-to-toe with a much bigger faction, you will lose. Wallace knows this. He also knows that Moray and himself, as separate rebellions, uh, will be squashed. Unless they're unified, there is no hope. So he begins to unify his men with Andrew Moray's uh, rebels, uh, and they're going to meet at a place called Stirling. Now, when this happens, you have a fairly impressive group of Scottish rebels, but you also have England's army on the march. And this place, this city of Stirling, is where it seems like they're going to meet. And I know it sounds uh, cliched, and I know it sounds like we've talked about this before, but William Wallace knows his country. He knows every nook and cranny of Scotland better most certainly than the English. And he knows Stirling is an ideal place to fight. Because if you want to enter the city from the south, as the English will have to inevitably, the only way to do it is by crossing the Stirling Bridge. And the Stirling Bridge is very narrow. Maybe only a handful of men, four or five, can cross at a time in terms of the width of the front of the army. 
And no matter how big the English army is, they're only as effective as crossing that bridge one step at a time. So Wallace and Murray put their men on the other side of Stirling. The English army will march toward them and we'll see the battle occur. Who wins? Yada, yada, yada. The Scots win. And the Scots win because they use a system of warfare. They use a tactic and a methodology that has worked very well uh, for time in memoriam. We saw the Spartans use it against the Persians. It's how smaller armies negate bigger ones. Fighting on their terms on grounds that give them an advantage. As the English army had a bottleneck and funnel across that bridge, it allowed the uh, defensive position, the fighting position of the Scots to win the day. So the Battle of Stirling is a major blow uh, for England. And again, this elevates William Wallace to a level, uh, to, a, to a, a reputation in Scotland that we haven't seen yet. Because it shows he can go toe-to-toe with the English army. Not a quick raid, not a strike in the night, and find victory. This will be a challenge for us to talk about this next subject, but even though there is no official government of Scotland, even though Edward I is technically King of Scotland, he has disbanded or dismantled whatever puppet government was left in place, the people of the countryside will begin to throw their weight behind Wallace and Moray. Moray will die soon after the Battle of Stirling. He suffered an injury in the battle. Many thought he would be okay. He'll die as a result long after, as far as we're concerned. But before he does die, he and Wallace sit down with the deposed, so to speak, King John of Scotland, and receive a new title. And the new title is Guardian of the Kingdom. Again, when Moray will die, succumb to his wounds, there will be one just Wallace. But a king who technically has no authority gives Wallace a title uh, which technically doesn't exist. But it legitimizes him in the minds of many Scottish people. And I think that's valuable. What does he do with this new title? Does he act like a gentleman? Does he sit down at the diplomatic table? No. He gathers his men together. He says, we've been fighting in Scotland since the beginning. Now we're going to take the fight to England. And he raids northern England. He raids Northumberland and Cumberland. And he does what he did in Scotland to a much greater extent. He raids cities. He burns villages. He kills people. We have one source that tells us, and this may or may not be true, Again, this is a difficult subject in that regard. That he kills an English soldier. He flays him alive. I don't have to explain what that means. You can look that up. And then he skins him and wears the skin as uh, as a symbol of, of pride. That's William Wallace. Now, did that happen? I mean, I'd like to say no, but I don't really care. Uh, maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. War is hell, as they say. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff we see. And he's taken the fight now into England after his great victory at Stirling. So again, you're going to see incremental steps here. Wallace gaining power through rebellion, gaining prestige through rebellion, and really putting himself on the map. From a fugitive early on to now the leader of this rebel movement against the Kingdom of England. For some time, there is relative peace in Scotland. And for every minute of peace you have, if you're Edward I of England, that's a problem for you. Because it legitimizes more and more and more 
the idea that William Wallace, and to a greater extent, this deposed King John, really hold authority. It really takes away your position. I mean, the accolades that William Wallace gets in this time period, this interregnum of fighting, and it's not long, build one on top of the other. Uh, three members of Scottish nobility will bestow upon uh, William Wallace a knighthood, so he becomes Sir William Wallace. Again, only the King of England can do that. That's not something the King of Scotland can do, or these noblemen. So, you have uh, Edward I fuming over this, amongst all the other issues he has. You've got this illegitimate rebel garnering all this respect and all this attention. In 1298, almost as soon as you hit the spring thaw, just to give you some perspective of the urgency here, Edward I will reinvade Scotland, this time for good, at least he thinks. He'll meet with uh, William Wallace's army at a place called Falkirk. And this is the big be-all, end-all of William Wallace's military career. It's a big battle. It's a massive battle. Wallace has more strength behind him than he's ever had before. But the English king is finally taking it more seriously than he ever has before. He's got endless amounts of men. He's got different types of, of fighters. He's got archers. He's got bowmen. Uh, he's got infantry. He's got it all. Well-armored, well-trained for the most part. And some of them are, are paid. Uh, that's sort of an issue for Longshanks early on. Wallace has passion. Wallace has spirit. But that's not enough. At the end of the Battle of Falkirk, William Wallace will be defeated. His men will die on the field of battle. And he will flee into the unknown. So, time out. If you watch the movie Braveheart, you'll see the Battle of Falkirk. You'll see the Scottish lose. You don't see what happens to Wallace <laughs> after this, um, because it makes him look pretty bad. He flees, he escapes, he gives up his title of Guardian of the Kingdom. He does retain his knighthood by all standards, but he goes off the map. The person who takes over the fight is the actual Braveheart, Robert Bruce. He was known as the Braveheart, uh, not Wallace. And in the movie Braveheart, they make him out to be a bad guy. He kind of turns Wallace in. Uh, does not happen, not by a long shot. I mean, Robert Bruce turning his back on the movement and, and giving up Wallace is about as accurate as, uh, you know, if during the American Revolution, one of those spaceships from Independence Day showed up and wiped the British off the map. It just doesn't happen. Cool story. Doesn't happen. I think the actual story, though, and if you're listening, you probably agree with me, is far more interesting. William Wallace escapes Scotland. Where does he escape to? France. Of all places, he escapes to France. Now, why in the world would he do that? Well, he goes there as a diplomat. He does have a name. He does have some prestige. He flees into France, and he's trying to rally support against the English king. He visits King Philip IV of France and says, give us assistance. There are even evidence that there was people in Rome who had heard from William Wallace, very likely through letters from the king of France. But this guy's well-traveled. Rome. Okay, he doesn't just die on the battlefields in Scotland. He's doing this. Um, but he's trying to rally support. Now, from what we can best tell, there's a lot of espionage here. There's a lot of English spies in the French court. He doesn't get very far. 
In the year 1304, this is now six years after Falkirk, he finally returns to Scotland. And when he's there, he's captured near the city of Glasgow. By this point, William Wallace is immaterial for King Edward. I mean, the rebellion's put down in his mind to that point. Wallace is a coward who's escaped. Capturing him or not isn't going to make much of a difference. Wallace is pretty discredited. But if you could get him, I mean, that says a lot about the way things are going. I kind of equate this to the capture of Osama bin Laden. I mean, after a certain point, bin Laden was hiding. He was a non-factor. If he lives, he lives. If you get him, though, it'd be great news, but it's not like it would turn the war around in Afghanistan. But if you could get him, all the better. And they get him. They get him. Now, one thing the movie does show well uh, is what they do to William Wallace. They take him to uh, London. Uh, they find him guilty of any number of crimes. And they proceed to destroy him in a very, uh, very brutal way. They hanged him. Uh, they quartered him. Uh, they emasculated him. They cut off parts of his body, so to speak. Uh, they cut open his belly and pulled out his insides, and ultimately they beheaded him. Uh, and they sent his body to all corners of the kingdom. Uh, his head, to preserve it, was dipped in tar and sat atop the London Bridge, which, by the way, is somewhere in the American Southwest right now. I think it's in Arizona. Uh, that's another story, though. Not his head, the, the bridge. Uh, and his body parts went all over the kingdom, and the statement was made. But here's the important thing. Uh, William Wallace's legend after this death is something that will be inspirational to people still fighting for independence in Scotland, which they'll ultimately get. Um, his name will loom large. It's very much one of these remember the Alamo type of things. And even still today, we're talking about him. Um, he he becomes a legend in his own time, uh, but even more so after death. He becomes a, a mythological character after death. Um, and it's, you know, a brutal ending. So I guess it's well-deserved. Uh, but Wallace is one of these figures that just looms large forever. Now, my fear is that the movie Braveheart, after about 20 years is going to start to sink in. And that may be the new story of William Wallace. It's certainly not the original, and there are many, many places still in existence in Scotland where Wallace went. My favorite uh, is uh, at Lanark, where he, where he killed the Sheriff Hesselrig for supposedly murdering his wife. Um, people still go there. It's like, a, it's like a bowling green now. It's a flat... And in Amer in America, we don't play this game, so it's it's hard to explain. But it's a flat piece of ground. It's grass, almost like a golf green, and you roll small bowling balls. I mean, that's basically the idea. Is that people have their fun there, I guess. But you still have a tangible connection to William Wallace. However, we have to be careful that this sort of far out stuff, this Hollywood stuff, doesn't replace the actual story. Uh, one of the the crazy things that happens in that movie, because there's a lot of bad stuff that happened in the Scottish War of Independence by the English, is this notion of prima nocta. Uh, it's mentioned by Robert Downey Jr. in the Avengers movie. Uh, this idea that 
upon the wedding night of two Scottish people, a man and a woman, an English soldier would have the first crack at uh, sleeping with the wife before the husband to make sure that the first child they have is English and they'll breed them out. That, that has never happened before. It's actually pretty incredible and pretty bold uh, because for as savage as things were in the Middle Ages, we have no evidence that that actual thing ever existed or ever occurred. There's some of it maybe potentially in France, uh, but in it, England it just didn't happen that way. But it's one of those things. And again, it's a movie. It's meant to be entertaining. Let's not make it more than it is. But William Wallace looms large. He wasn't Braveheart, uh, but he was pretty darn important. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.